Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Bartok, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine. Today, we're delving into an incredibly important and often overlooked topic, how trauma and stress due to racism can impact the Black community physically, mentally, and emotionally. Experiencing racism is an everyday occurrence for many Black individuals. It takes on many forms, from subtle microaggressions to overt acts of prejudice. And it's the subtle covert acts of racism that often lends itself to many people experiencing invalidation and skepticism at the racism they face. What does it mean to be hypervigilant in the face of racial discrimination? And how does the constant state of alertness affect one's mental health? How does it feel to work twice as hard just to attain what others might take for granted? And what psychological toll does that exact? Here to discuss this topic with us is our guest, Dr. Rihanna Elise Anderson. Rihanna is a licensed clinical psychologist, CEO and founder of Race Space, and fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard University. Her scholarship addresses applied coping strategies to reduce race-related stress in Black families. She's currently on scholarly leave as an associate professor at Columbia University's School of Social Work. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast, Rihanna. Thank you so much. So before we dive into our questions, I'd like to ask you about your health discovery. What was your aha moment around the intersection of racism and mental health? And what were some of the actions and the work that you've done since that aha moment? Thank you again so much for having me today. And Neha, when we were chatting just before, we were talking about Detroit, which is a topic that is very close to my heart, one that I love quite a bit. And I was actually in another talk this week where this incident came up. This man who was experiencing a mental health challenge was on the street and unfortunately had a fatal encounter with the police. And he lost his life as a result of this encounter. He was struck several times by members of the Detroit Police Department. And I know that that sounds a bit odd. It's not what we might say as empirical evidence with respect to racism and mental health, but the combination of those factors, this Black man in Detroit having a mental health episode and treated in a way that is not supportive of his humanity, his wellness, his ability to recover, is something that we see time and time again. This dehumanization, this mischaracterization of Black people, whether they are experiencing wellness or illness. And it's something that stuck with me as something that I wanted to ensure that those experiencing wellness or illness could be seen as human. And those who are experiencing the effects of racism can get better from these encounters. So that's what I remember being a child in Detroit and seeing the combination of those factors get me interested in this work. I'm really excited and interested to hear your framework for incorporating families and those relationships as a protective strategy. But before we get into that, I would love to talk about racial discrimination and our misunderstanding of what that means. Could you help us understand the covert and overt when we're talking about racial discrimination? 
Such a great question and such an important thing for folks, this definition, this having it in their minds, because I think one of the most challenging things that you might see in the news is this hesitancy or resistance for people to say that I am engaging in racial incidents. I am being discriminatory. I am, quote, racist. So I think it's really important for us to dig into what those definitions are. So when we think about discrimination in and of itself, that's the behavioral correlate of racism. That's a lot of words. So let me break that down. Racism in and of itself is a structural level or a system in which folks of one group may see folks in another group. In this case, we're talking about Black Americans in a light that is not in the same level and in fact subordinate to them. So it's using beliefs and using behaviors to discriminate against, to hold another group in a lower standing than a majority group. So that's racism as a whole. When I talk about the behavioral correlate, it's what we do with those thoughts and those beliefs or those systems that result in discriminatory behaviors or actions. So when we talk about a direct discrimination incident, that might be being called a derogatory name, the N-word, for example. When we talk about vicarious, it means that we don't even have to be the ones receiving that treatment. It could be that I'm looking at my phone and seeing someone that looks a lot like me go through a similar incident. That's actually the preponderance of incidents that happen now. People don't even say that they experience discrimination more than they say they see others experiencing it on cell phones, through social media, et cetera. But then getting back to that structural level. So when we talk about racism as a whole, what does that look like? It could be policies. It could be practices that don't allow, for example, a black person to enter into a club or to vote in the same way that we saw early voting restrictions codified in the United States. And those remnants still exist today, how people can register to vote, for example, where they can go, the time that it takes to do such a thing. Those are direct remnants of early codified policies that restricted behaviors based on racial incidents. But I want to jump in real quick to the other piece you said about what could be not even perceived as discriminatory, but really what takes up a lot of space in our head. And we might call that microaggressions, where people might be looking around and wondering if that purse that got clutched was because of my race, my age, my gender. Was my teacher snubbing me and not calling on me a a factor of my race or my intellect? There's so many things that when it's not clear, when we're not called a certain thing, when there's not a sign that says it, takes residence in our mind and makes us question, is this because of race? And we would call that the more subtle approach, the microaggression. Yeah, I think that that is a really interesting piece for those outside of the Black community. And it kind of gets to invalidating that experience or potentially questioning whether these things are actually happening. I'm very curious on your take on this and what we can do. I'm a narrative speaker. I love a good story. I'm a clinical psychologist after all. I'm going to try to do a 30-second story that I think answers this. And it came to me in the midst of COVID, where at the very top of the pandemic, I was living in the city of Detroit and a lot of my colleagues at the University of Michigan were living in Ann Arbor or surrounding areas. 
And at this point, there's no question that there were racial dynamics that impacted responses, treatment to the pandemic. That should not be in question. But a more subtle way of thinking about that is the lived experience. So I was hearing sirens. I was witnessing death all around me. There were people calling me for consultation and consoling. And my colleagues on a call indicated being able to see their horses graze grass in ways that they hadn't been able to see it before because they were at work. So they, were, they typically would let the horses just go. But now that they were home, they could have them go from one patch of land to the next. And I call that story the horse and the hearse because I'm witnessing death all around me and my lived daily experience was that of tragedy, was of crying, was just absolute grief. And other people could not see that life. So when you're looking through these glasses and you're looking through the world with your own lens, your own set of beliefs and experiences, it is incredibly hard to understand that other people who are also waking up at the same time, going to the same work environment, might be experiencing things very differently. So I actually have a lot of empathy from that situation to say, it may not be that you're not even trying to deny it. It may not be that you're ignorant to it. You really just may not be able to fathom that this exists. And yet there's a preponderance of evidence or a preponderance of stories and examples that if you are willing to listen and believe that exists to help you understand. So I'd love to then get to what's happening in our brains that's affecting our emotional mental health toll because of this. So how does that impact the underlying neural structures before we sort of get into what that emotional toll could look like? And I would actually argue that both are important to learn about at the same time. So I'm going to try my best to weave them together. And I certainly know we're on WebMD. I know it's really important for folks to, to get the information and the empiricism here. But what is really important also to know is the context and why hypervigilance, for example, may be more robust in a case of racial discrimination or trauma relative to other forms of trauma or discrimination. So I always like to think about the context of when African-Americans were subjected, let's just say, on a field where they were unable to talk about some of the challenges or the hurt or the pain that they were experiencing when it was unsafe to speak out against the treatment that they had, it meant that they potentially could lose a family member, a limb, or their life. These are real experiences that were happening to people, which then taught them, I am unable to express what's happening to me, my family, my loved ones. And what I'm going to have to do is to stay very alert so that I have my eyes open and I'm seeing what's happening around me, but I'm unable to unpack or process that information. So those neural pathways started to develop very early in our experience here in the United States to stay alert and stay attentive because it's really important to take a look both at the physiological, the psychological, and the contextual pieces that bring the neural pathways into focus here. So when we think about the contextual elements of how that neural pathway even developed, if we're thinking about the ancestors who are on a field and it's not quite possible to indicate your discomfort, your distress in that moment, you're still shouldering quite a bit of that pain or the frustration or the acknowledgement that this is not right. You're then forced to think about how do I remain safe? How do I keep my family intact? How do I not lose life, limb or 
liberty? What is it that I can do to, to stay intact? So you create systems around you where you're looking quite a bit that might be hypervigilance to where the nearest threat is. And again, you're not unpacking any of these emotions. So physiologically now, you may have increased heart rate. You may have increased blood pressure. There are a number of systems within your body, your mind, and your brain that are now being impacted by that context. So when you think about modern times then and how that continues for generations over time, there are certainly epigenetic factors, that is how things are passed along from generation to generation within the body or the cellular level. But those neural pathways are also socialized. They're taught on how we're able to get by. You have to stay vigilant. You have to look around. You have to maintain safety. And the challenge there from the psychosocial standpoint is that there still may not be spaces or places where you can unpack some of the concerns or the frustration or the discrimination that you're experiencing because we're not in safe spaces all the time to do that. So it's really a mirroring of some of the effects that we saw centuries ago that still show up that reinforce those neural pathways to keep us safe, to keep us from harm even though we're not experiencing the same exact context around us. So just shifting more toward a solutions focus and a strengths focus, I am really curious about your work making the family the locus of intervention. Can you talk a little bit about your own framework? And then we can talk a little bit more about how do we approach this from a solution standpoint? Absolutely. So I'll back up just a bit there because one of the things that I think is really important in this conversation is the unique toll that racial stressors exact on the mind, body, and livelihoods of Black folks. So in a lot of the literature, and this is what I found really interesting across the mind, the body, and the brain, is that when you add an element of racial discrimination, so we could be measuring a number of stressors. It could be financial stress, which is, of course, quite impactful to an individual or their family. We could be looking at gender discrimination. We could look at a number of high-level stressors or discriminations, and they might operate the same way. That is, they might lead to depression or anxiety. They may lead to change neural pathways where you're more vigilant or more fearful of a certain stimuli. But when you put racial discrimination in the mix, you've got two things that often happen. One is that their outcomes seem to be a bit more severe than these other stressors or discriminations. And the second is that they have unique properties such that in the case you just asked me, it could be that oftentimes if I'm experiencing a stressor as a parent, maybe that doesn't trickle down to my child, right? So maybe it impacts me and I'm able to absolve some of that stress and I'm able to, to manage it. But in the case of racial discrimination, what we have found is that not only does it impact me as an individual, so maybe I'm more depressed, it impacts my parenting, and then that parenting trickles down to you as the child, but it also impacts the child directly. So it's all of these lines that just don't exist in other forms of stress, trauma, discrimination. Racial discrimination really is unique in that way. So Neha, I bring all of that up because when we're thinking about solutions to discrimination, we have to look at how it uniquely impacts not only a parent, but the whole family structure. So what we have found, again, is that discrimination shows up in so many ways, and it's important to address all of those ways. So we got to address the parent. 
to make sure that they're well, to attend to their depression, anxiety, and stress. We've got to ensure that their parenting has support so that they don't feel like it's impossible to talk to their child about this really challenging factor that sometimes doesn't seem like there's any solution for. But we also have to make sure that that child is well as well. So a lot of our therapies that we've developed try to attend to the parent, the child, and then the dyad together so that we can talk about race really effectively and competently with one another to reduce or eliminate the impact of discrimination on those outcomes. So I'm really curious about your framework and what you're finding is very helpful and adaptive in a positive way. It can be dangerous to just give the prescription talk about race because sometimes we're not equipped to do that, given all, again, of the consequences that have come from expressing yourself, talking about it in places where others aren't ready to talk about it. And even now, as, as we're seeing the policies in classrooms or in libraries, where talking about it can very seriously have impacts and consequences for individuals. So I think it's really important for us to know what it is that we should be talking about and how to be talking about it. So a lot of the literature of this construct that we've been chatting about, and we would call it racial socialization, that is, how do we socialize children to the norms and behaviors of race and racism in our community? Racial socialization has been talked about from the what. So what are the things that families talk about? It can be cultural socialization. That's pride-filled messages, preparation for bias, what to do in a discriminatory situation, promotion of distrust, which is where we get into more of the maladaptive pieces where you can't trust anyone of a certain background, and also one that's a bit ambivalent but can be maladaptive as well, egalitarianism or colorblindness, the way that we block out some of the facts of our racist society to instill hope in our young people that that won't be a burden on them. Those are some of the things that have been observed over time as what Black families talk about. But what my colleagues and I have been doing in the past few years is changing it not from content, but to competency. So how do we become more competent in our skills, competence, and stress levels when we're talking to children about race and racism? And effectively, it requires practice. It requires your own unpacking as a parent or an adult who's socializing a child. It requires you having to do the deep work with, again, yourself or the folks that are around you. It requires practice. It requires your own unpacking and a willingness and ability to get it wrong with young people. And I think that's a fear for a lot of parents. And that makes a lot of sense that one would be a bit nervous to talk to their child, to get it wrong, to not say the right thing. So you got to listen to what your child is bringing you, first and foremost. you got to be willing to go back the next day and say, listen, I got that wrong. Let me try it again. I think the biggest piece here is that competency takes time. It's not the talk. It's a series of conversations. It's a series of meeting your child where they are, but also meeting yourself where you are and being willing to get it wrong time and time again. So what are some of the strategies that you found to be most successful for building the competencies? So I've mentioned a few, right? So we've got confidence, stress, and skills. Those are the competencies that we think about within this greater construct. So when we think about what confidence is, your willingness and ability to broach the subject, it often takes that unpacking for yourself. So one key thing that we might encourage you to do is to journal for example, so that you're able to see some of 
the stories that you've had hidden for 20 years, some of the things that you haven't wanted to broach because of the pain and the trauma that you've encountered. So building confidence requires your approaching and broaching of the subject itself. Skills is really what are the tools around you that will aid you in this. And that's what I love about this work. We have amassed so many free online resources, and I'd be happy to, to give that for you guys to link in here. We have so many free resources from so many groups that we've worked with for all of these different age ranges that allow for using tools to guide you in these conversations. We also use quite a bit of media. So we love Blackish. It's a show that we prescribe for families to sit down and check out the episode of The Talk or a number of other shows that show families actually engaging in this dialogue and you can pick up on it. But it's evident across media and social media. And it's really about asking the questions that get you and your child to be able to, to talk about it more freely. So clearly, when you're providing these resources, you want to ensure that the discussion is centered in a way that's age appropriate. So I think that's a really important point. Sometimes people use age as an excuse not to talk to children. So it's really important to understand that the literature shows that Infants as young as six months old can detect differences in race. By three, we're starting to make meaning and vocalize those differences. By seven, you're seeing behaviors that mock that. So it's really not consistent with the evidence that shows that children can pick up and perceive racial differences. And we know that they start to make meaning of those differences. So we have to find the age appropriate ways to talk to children, maybe not hand them a Shakespearean style book on race and racism, but to give them pictures, to give them comics, to talk to them about these real encounters that they're facing in the world in an age appropriate way. Are there other techniques like CBT or mindfulness that we hear about in other forms of trauma that can also be helpful and protective? Absolutely. So TFCBT, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, is something that a colleague, Dr. Aisha Metzger, is integrating. So I've developed a few interventions myself, whether it's therapy or apps where we integrate CBT techniques. My colleague, Aisha Metzger, utilizes trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy in her group-based setting. So we absolutely recognize the importance of the strategies that the therapeutic community is using. The only caution that I would put there is that it's really important for therapists to understand the context once again. So we might create a situation in CBT where we say this is an irrational fear that you have. It doesn't make sense to believe this. Let's see if we can challenge your mind <laughs> to make sense of it. But here we understand there are very real stressors, traumas, fears that people have. And so it's a question of how is the therapist making sense of the context to ensure that the client has the best experience with CBT or TFCBT. What are some of the ways that families that are not Black can have these conversations with their children? It is imperative for families who are not Black to have these conversations. So I, as a clinical psychologist, work on healing for Black people, and I don't want this job forever. I want to move on to other issues, but I can't move on to other issues unless other people are having those conversations with their children. And arguably, their competency needs to really be increased so that they're able to tap into some of those things we talked about earlier that 
it, it, it may not be an unwillingness. It may just be an unfamiliarity from that experience. So that means you have to grab a lot of media. You have to grab a lot of tools that are, are going to help you understand what other people are experiencing so that when you're having conversations with your child, it's not just the individual level stuff that you're treating this other child wrong. You need to apologize. It's when you become the CEO of this company. What are the rules and the structures that you have there? When you become a legislator, what are the policies or the laws that you're implementing? That's where we're going to see structural level change when varying families, people of varying races are able to understand the impact of trauma on Black folks and say enough is enough. I'd like to close by just asking you about any pushback. What are some of the things that you see on the types of conversations that you're trying to have as sort of healing conversations? Neha, I love that we're on WebMD and I love that we've been talking about empiricism and statistics. And so on the one hand, I could come from a scientific standpoint and say there are so many studies that have indicated the harm that racism exacts on Black people and not just Black people, but all of us, right? If we want to be super clear on why we should be working to eliminate this, it's everyone being harmed. But beyond that, talking about race and the, those racism issues alleviates and reduces that harm. So statistically, empirically, I'm a scientist, we've got that done. But I also want to indicate from a personal perspective that when I have talked with children and their families as a teacher, as a community healer, and watching the breakthroughs that come from 20 years of stories that have been kept inside that are now being released and the tears are flowing and the hugs are coming in, like there's nothing that can convince you more than experiencing it and being willing to see and feel that this is real. This is real for people. This is their everyday life. It's generational. It is a real phenomenon. And so to the people who think that it is not real and that we should just restrict it and that would make it go away, the science doesn't support you and the people don't either. Thank you for that really important point. And I'd like to just, in closing, have you share with us actionable bite-sized things that people can do right now, whether that's learnings from empirical evidence, your personal experience, your work with race space. I'd love to just give you the floor all right. Well, I'm corny. So here you go. Here, here's, the, here's the rhyme for you. We're going to walk, talk and chalk, y'all. When you walk, I want you to actually engage in behaviors that reduce or eliminate racial discrimination. So it's not enough to just talk about it. We need you to get out there and walk it out. What does it look like to start that conversation tonight with your family? What does it look like to get that book that you've been talking about reading? So really get out there and do the work. But you do have to talk about it as well. So we can't just eliminate that. We've got to make sure that you're expressing yourself and giving space to others, especially children, to do the same. And finally, the chalking. This is where we take it to the next level. So I'm a clinical psychologist. A lot of my work is inter or intrapersonal, but we got to take it to the structural. So how can you support your local, state and federal changes with respect to policy and laws? That's the chalk. Thank you so much for being with us today. This conversation has really been so critical, I think, for not just transforming one person, but really thinking about how we can transform our own families and our communities. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Dr. Patrick. We've talked with Dr. Rihanna Elise Anderson. 
To find out more information about Dr. Anderson and her work, visit rihannaelise.com. We'll have information about her work in our show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Fatak for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast.